The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, as we settle into our places and prepare to hear from you, my prayer this morning Father, is that you would bring the full weight of your word to bear down upon us. This people has not come into this place looking for light and fluffy and flippant. We want the truth. Knowing that the only real hope that will ever be found in all the universe is found in this the truth of your word. So Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts now to receive it. That you would bring softening where softening is needed. That you would bring humbling where humbling is needed. That you would bring wisdom and insight and discernment to all. That Father, we would leave this place knowing without a shadow of doubt that we have met with you the only true God and King of the universe. And that by that encounter, Father, we would be changed. For it's in your Son's precious name we ask these things. Amen. So I ask you to return to your feet, please. So we continue reading Ephesians chapter 1. We are in verses 3 through 14 yet again. I remind you that this is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative Word of God. We must receive it as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to, the, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. So the Apostle Paul has gone to great lengths to invite us to consider the mind of God. He has pulled back the veil, as you know, swept us up into the heavenly places. He's tried to take our mind off of these earthly and immediate things. 
have to imagine the Apostle Paul, just like every single one of us, we recognize just how loud and big this world can seem. The physical things, the immediate needs of family and flesh, they're always right there in front of us demanding our attention. Seeming so big at times that we almost can't get a clear look at God. So the Apostle Paul, it seems as though he has lifted us up to 30,000 feet and he has allowed us to consider what are God's grand purposes in all of this. He's taken us outside of time, hasn't he? He's taken us all the way back to before the foundation of the world, before there was time. And he's told us this is what God has been doing all along. What was God doing before there was a world? What was God doing before we existed? He was planning. He was purposing. He was taking counsel with himself. It was his will and his good pleasure that he would then set a path for all of creation, a path which ends, he has told us now, in the uniting of all things, all time and all things in Christ Jesus. Paul then goes on to tell us, lest we think that God just did things in eternity past, he then tells us that God has not only planned and purposed something for his creation, but that he has accomplished that very thing. Of course, he begins by telling us about the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who would come and, as I say, accomplish the Father's purpose, laying down his life to win for himself those very people whom the Father has chosen. But not only in this, last week we found the Apostle Paul telling us that God has not just worked in the sending of his son, he was not just working in his raising his son from the dead, but that in all things God is working according to the counsel of his will. All things. Pray you had some time to meditate on that this week. All things. I'm wearing red shoes this morning. Do you know why I'm wearing red shoes this morning? Because I like red shoes. Gives Carter and I something to talk about because he sometimes wears red shoes. We're team red shoes for life. But you don't know the ultimate reason I'm wearing red shoes this morning? Because the God of the universe ordained it. Everything. Everything. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Pray that you stood in awe of that this week. Knowing, therefore, that means that nothing that the enemy can throw against you, not even your own sins, can thwart, thwart God's plan, his perfect and preordained plan for your life. That he didn't just predestined us for a place. He didn't just choose us to be adopted as sons. He determined the very means by which he would get us there. That's the way theologians speak about this, that God has not only ordained the ends, but the means. Not just the who, not just the where, but the how. Every single step from here to there. And beloved, I pray that you recognize why this matters. This means that every single one of these precious moments, it's being used of your Father for your good. There is no meaningless moment. There is no insignificant thing that every single second in this life that every single ounce of everything that we experience from here until the day we close our eyes, we can be sure that our good, good Father is using it to our good and to his glory. All things. Ta panta. That's the Greek term. All things. I wish that we would preach that to each other. 
perhaps get it tattooed across our forehead or maybe at least some shirts made up. Tapanda, all things, so that you can look to me in my time of distress. You can look to me when the world around me seems to be in total chaos. You can look to me and you can say, brother, all things, all times, all moments, all things to your good and to his glory. Also, Paul won't let her eyes move off of that, his glory, over and over and over again. As he comes to the conclusion of each one of these sections in this word of praise, comes the end of telling us about the planning of God the Father, and he says that it is to the praise of the glory of his grace. He talks about the working of the Son and winning our redemption, and he says that it's to the praise of his glory. Then right here, yet again, talking to us about the work of the Holy Spirit and applying that redemption, and he says, yet again, it's to the praise of his glory. So much of the confusion, I'm afraid, that comes in this lifetime, so much of the misunderstanding that comes whenever we look to God's purposes in this world and we seek to really study and consider what he said in his word, so much of that I fully believe comes from missing out on what is the ultimate purpose. What's the reason in all this? What's the ultimate motivator? What's the thing that drives God? What's his real and ultimate purpose and zeal for all things? It is for the praise of his glory. He tells us that explicitly in this morning's text. As we move from eternity past, we move from those things which happened long ago, even from the events of 2,000 years ago and the coming of Christ Jesus our Lord, as we move into the now, we move into the world of our own experience. He wants to make certain that we don't then make ourselves the center of the universe because that's always the danger. The minute we take our eyes off of heaven, the minute we stop contemplating the eternal things and we look at the practical, the applicable, the experiential right here in front of us, it's very easy to make ourselves the center of the universe. So to make certain that we don't do that, as Paul now comes to ground level and he speaks to us at the level of our experience, we find him yet again drawing our minds there. He says in verse 11, in him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, this is the purpose now, the purpose in our predestining, the ultimate purpose in Christ's coming, the true driver behind our salvation, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. He will not let us take our eyes anywhere else. He won't let us forget it. This is the most important thing, the glory of God, the center of the universe for our good and for his glory in all things. Again, I tell you, if we don't see this, if we allow our minds and our hearts to drift away from this, there's a whole lot that's going to happen in this world that's not going to make sense. You're going to find yourself asking, how can God be good if this has happened? Or how can God be in control if this has happened? Well, beloved, I tell you that if you keep the glory of God at the center of the universe, some pieces start to make sense real quick. Some passages in Scripture that don't really seem to work together, that seem to be at odds with each other. If we remember, no, 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 God's ultimate purpose, his greatest passion is for his glory. While we may not see it all, while we will never come to a full comprehension of all that God is doing, we will find ourselves in a whole lot less turmoil we recognize that this book is one redemptive story. All coming together. But I want you to take notice of what he says there. He doesn't just say 
that our predestination was to the glory of God's grace. He's not just talking about our adoption being to the praise of God's glory. He's not even talking about our receipt of our eternal inheritance and that alone being to the praise of his glory. What does he say here? He says that we might be to the praise of his glory. The whole of this life. What did Paul, what did Paul say to the Corinthians? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It's so easy for us as Christian men and women to believe that there's just those critical moments in life and those are the ones that really matter. Look, you're gonna get eight, 10, maybe 12 moments in your life and those are gonna be the real important moments. And if I can just overcome those, if I can just master those, if I can just win those critical moments, then all things will work for my good and his glory and surely he will welcome me home. And he said, no, in all things, tapanta. All moments and all things, whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, whether you're showering, whether you're driving to work, whether you're talking to your coworkers, whether you're sitting alone and just contemplating the universe, in all things, do it all to the glory of God. How might this change your life? How might this change your speech? How might this change your financial patterns in your marriage? I will do it all to the glory of God. But he's not just talking about the things that we do, is he? He's talking about us. He says that you might be, that you might exist to the glory of God. Now, I do pray that you've recognized by now, not just reading through this book of Ephesians, but really this is the pattern in all of Paul's writing, that the doing always flows from the being, the true doing. Anyone can do things that look to outwardly glorify the name of God, but those things which truly magnify his name the things that really fulfill their ultimate purpose in this lifetime. Those are those things that flow from our being. That's why Paul speaks the way that he does. We find that in the first three chapters of this letter to the Ephesians, he's talking about doctrine. He's talking about the indicative, who we are. It's only then after he's completed that that he'll talk to us about the imperative, about the doing, about the carrying out, about the duty of the Christian. Do you follow this? Because he knows that until you recognize who you are in Christ, until you recognize what God has done on your behalf to bring you into communion with Christ, you have no hope of actually doing that which he has called you to do. That's why the Apostle Paul, he's not talking here about something that we do. He's not even talking about one specific thing that God has done in bringing us to salvation. He's talking about who we are, that you might be to the praise of his glory. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Do you understand this? That in Christ Jesus, you're not just a new man with new patterns. You haven't just taken off one jersey or one, one pledge of allegiance to one group and now transferred that over to another. You're a new thing all together. In Christ Jesus, a new creation. So that the whole of who you are now resounds to the praise of the glory of God. So that when men and women in this world, they see you, not even just in the doing, they come upon you and they see you and they recognize there's something different about this man than before. What did they say to the apostles in the early days? Surely these men have been with Christ. What's my prayer for us every single Sunday morning as we come here? Is that God would be glorified and we would be changed. I hope you're not tired of hearing that yet. Hope it doesn't hurt your feelings. This guy thinks I need to change. Well, yes. Yes, I do. I think we all do. 
We know that in Christ Jesus, we're a new thing altogether, and he is continually changing us more and more and more from glory to glory, more like Christ Jesus, so that when the world sees us and they recognize there's an absolute change in this man, new thoughts, new will, new affections, new desires, the refusal to take an offense, the willingness to suffer for the sake of his name. This is an all-new creation altogether. This is not who he once was. And as they look at us and they recognize, and he didn't do this on his own. This man didn't just wake up one day and become a butterfly. He didn't manifest himself into something new. There was surely something at work within him. Surely this is to the glory of God. I knew who you were. Now I see who you are. Now I've warned you before that those little church boys and girls, those of us that grew up in church and were mostly decent kids, Spoiler alert for those of you that have children in this church. They're not as good as you think. But the reality is that those of us that grew up, most of us in, in, in Christian homes and were brought into the church and we were taught the word of God and particularly those of us whose parents kind of helicopter mommed us all the way to the finish line. It's easy sometimes to look up and go, you know what? I'm so sad that I don't have some tremendous testimony about the way that God just radically transformed my life. He didn't call me off a crack. He didn't win me out of a gang. He didn't drag me up from the, from the gutter physically. And we look at those other people that have these tremendous testimonies about the way that God just radically transformed their lives, and we can get jealous at times. Why don't I have a testimony like this? Well, beloved, those who have testimonies like that, they'll look at you and say, you don't want that. You don't want that. But I would remind you that even the best little church kid you ever knew never uttered a cuss word in front of mommy and daddy, never touched a lick of alcohol, showed up in, sun, showed up in church every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, gave their whole life to following after Christ. You need to know that they too need to be a new creation. By the Spirit of God, they need absolute transformation in their life so that when the world looks upon them, they will recognize this is a work that surely God has done that they might be to the praise of his glory. Paul won't allow us to move our eyes off of that and on to the things of earth until we've got it settled in our hearts. So I pray by now that you do. That's why we've moved as slowly as we have. Something like, I think this is my 31st sermon in the book of Ephesians. So we've spent 30 sermons thinking about the eternal, the spiritual, the heavenly things. And now the Apostle Paul brings us down, brings us down to the level of our experience. Not just the planning of the Father, not just the accomplishing of the Son, but the application of the Spirit to the children of God. So we must ask the question this morning, how then does this happen? How does the Holy Spirit come and apply to our lives that which the Father has planned and the Son has accomplished? At what point does this purpose of God intersect with our life in real time? It's a valid question. At what point does this thing happen? And beloved, something must happen. You recognize this. That's the danger. Whenever we begin to contemplate the fact that Scripture tells us that we were in Christ, that in the mind and will and purposes of God, we have been in Christ since before we were born. That our names had been written in the Lamb's book of life before there was time. And yet scripture tells us that in a very real sense, as we walk through this life from the moment of our birth until the moment of our salvation, until the moment we cried out to Christ Jesus as Lord, that we were very much children of wrath, sons of disobedience, enemies of God. 
Therefore, something has to happen. Again, the Apostle Paul now steps into time at the level of our experience. Verse 12, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. You recognize then in verse 13, he talks about in him you also. He's making a comparison here. And so we do well, I think, before we ask the what and the how, to ask who. Who is Paul talking about here when he says we? It seems obvious to me that he's talking about the same we that we've been talking about since verse 3. He's talking about those who have been chosen by God, predestined for adoption as sons, who have an inheritance waiting for them in heaven even now. But why then does he shift to the you also? In him, you also. Because you'll recognize that all that I've been talking about from verse 3 down through verse 11, I've never been talking about some exterior group. I've been talking about you. I've been talking about what God was doing in eternity past for you, what Christ Jesus came and did on the cross for you. Was I out of line? Why then is Apostle Paul now moving on to saying, in you also? Is this just a preacher? This is a preacher's linguistic. Is this just, I'll preach like this at times. I want to make certain that you take what I'm saying from this pulpit and don't just think it applies to some general broad group out there in the world, that it applies to you. So is that all that he's doing here? He's saying that it was God's planning and God's providence that has brought the world, that has brought the church, that has brought every single Christian to the point of salvation, and you also. This is a message for you. This is a personal message for all those saints who find themselves there in the church in Ephesus. Is that all he's doing? Or perhaps do we learn something by the qualification that he makes there, that qualifying phrase that comes after the we. He says that we, who are the first to hope in Christ. That would seem to give us some idea that there is actually two groups that he has in mind here, doesn't it? We who are the first to hope in Christ. Who's he speaking about? Is the we just the Apostle Paul? Is, it just the, is he speaking in the, in the plural about himself? Is he talking about himself and the other apostles? Is it he plus the others? Or perhaps it is just Paul and the other missionaries who have come with him to the people in Ephesus. Is that the we? Or perhaps are the we the Jewish people, those who are the first to hope in Christ, those who had the promise of the Messiah, those who had been looking forward since the very beginning of their calling out as a nation, who had been looking forward to the one who would come and redeem them, this eternal king, the son of David, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, who had set them free. I'll tell you right off the bat, I don't think that that can be it, not the whole of the Jewish society, because, beloved, if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll find there are still men there waiting for the Messiah. When we went to Israel three or four years ago now, I forget how long it was, you would see billboards with old men with long beards, and then there would be some Hebrew writing next to it, and, of course, I couldn't read it. I didn't know what it meant, and so we asked our tour guide, what is that? Is that a man that's running for a political office? Is he an insurance agent? What is that bill, billboard advertising for? They say, no, that's the people that they believe might be the Messiah. Well, what happens when that man comes and dies and is gone? Well, they find another one. They find the next guy that they believe might be the Christ, the Messiah. So that can't be the picture here, but Perhaps is it the Jewish people who were the first to receive the gospel? The one to whom the Messiah, the Christ, had come. Is he talking about Jewish believers here? I think that might be it. Particularly when you consider the theme that Paul's going to go into. As we move into chapter 2, as he talks about the unity, the, 
the oneness, the one people that God is building amongst Jewish and Gentile believers. As we come to chapter 3 and we read in Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You'll remember that amongst the Jewish and the Gentile people, there was a dividing wall of hostility. There was a partition between them. That all throughout the Old Testament, God had been warning his people that you are my chosen people and you're to be separate from the rest. You're to be set apart and separate from the world. And then they held with great pride the fact that God had come to them. He had issued to them these promises. He had given to them the law. He had promised to them the coming Christ. And now Paul says that I've got a mystery. Again, this is not a puzzle to be solved. This is not a thing that only really smart people can figure out. He says, and here is the mystery that I've come to reveal. That God has been joining together in one person, his son Christ Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles. That's the whole world, by the way, unless you're wondering. You're either Jewish or you're Gentile. He's been joining together them as one in Christ Jesus. That's we and you also. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's yet again setting the stage for a theme that's going to come later in his letter, and it's a theme of unity. That's a weird way to talk about unity, isn't it? Listen, if I wanted to come in here and I want to... I want to make sure that you people know that we are united as one faith family. There are no haves and have-nots. There are no ins and outs. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Wouldn't it be strange then for me to get up and immediately talk about me and you, the we's and the y'all's? And yet this is the way the Apostle Paul talks in all of his writing, isn't it? Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Power of God into salvation to the Jew first. Where does Paul get this idea? Well, from Jesus himself. I want you to think about Jesus' earthly ministry. In Matthew 10, whenever he sends the apostles out, he sends his disciples out. They're going to go and they're going to heal and they're going to preach and they're going to share the gospel. And what does he say? He says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. You need to go to the people of Israel. You remember when the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus looking for healing for her daughter? What did Jesus say? He said, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. What about John 4 when he's there with the Samaritan woman? She's waiting for water at the well, and they have this beautiful discourse there at the well. And what did Jesus say to her, though? That salvation is from the Jews. So we see very clearly all throughout the scriptures that God had a plan. God had a purpose. He had a program of redemption, and it began with these people whom he had chosen for himself. Now, I remind you, he did not choose them because they were the greatest, the most powerful, the most lovely. In Deuteronomy 7, over and over and over again, I return your minds that he says, I love you because I love you. I chose you because I chose you. And yet we see that in God's faithfulness to his promises, In God's steadfast love for this unlovable people, he continues to usher forth to them this grace, grace in the promise of the Messiah. Romans 9 talks about this, that they're the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So we see these tremendous privileges that God gave to the Jewish people. All these signs and pointers and wonders that should have directed their hearts forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. 
So much so was this a privilege that we see the Apostle Paul, whenever we get to chapter 2 of Ephesians, talking about the state of the Gentile people. He says here that, Therefore remember that you at one time, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This was the state of the Gentiles outside of Christ, outside of his plans, outside of his promises, without hope, without God in the world. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 13, but now. We praise God for the buts in Scripture. And when he talks about the desperate state of lost and sinful men, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we see that this was God's plan. Yes, these Gentiles would be outside the plan and outside the promises, and they were not the ones to whom the Christ would come. And yet his plan, going all the way back to Father Abraham, was that through him the nations of the world would be blessed. So that when we see Jesus about to ascend to the Father's right hand, as he's giving his commission as he's given his mission and his charge to his church, what does he say? You'll begin in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That salvation comes first to the Jew, but it goes from the Jew to the world. This was always God's plan. The we and the you also. Not meant to create division, but meant to assure these Gentiles, you also share in these promises. You also in Christ have all these spiritual blessings that I've just been laying out. The adoption, the inheritance, eternal joys in the presence of God. You have a place in this because of the coming of Christ Jesus. We and you also. Do you see where the unity comes? So you can look to these people and say, yes, the law of God has been given to us. An incredible gift. And yet this law was not some ladder that we climbed to get to God. This law was not something that placed us in a separate position before God from the world. In fact, he says, we're no better off than the Gentiles because what the law does is it enslaves everything under sin. The law of God comes and it shows God's people more clearly perhaps than the rest. It enlightens, illumines their eyes and enlightens their hearts to reveal to them all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no advantage just because you're amongst the Jewish nation. There is no advantage just because you are born to the bloodline of Abraham. The advantage is these gifts have been given to you to show you your sin, to show you your desperate need for the promised Christ. And then, of course, as the Christ Jesus comes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. Therefore, if there's going to be hope, that's, there's going to be there's going to be a hope for unity that's going to be found between the Jewish people and the rest of the world. It's not going to be found in the Gentiles becoming Jews. It's not going to be found in the Gentiles taking the circumcision. It's not going to be found in the Gentiles then somehow mastering the law of God. It's going to be found in Christ Jesus. That's why he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ and you also when you heard and believed. That it's through faith. That it's through hope that it's in Christ Jesus where you find yourselves the recipients of this promise. Galatians 3, 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed, 
So then, those who are of the faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. What Paul is revealing to us is there's always only been one way of salvation. One of the questions that children will ask early in life as they begin to study the scriptures on their own, as they begin to look to the heroes of the faith, as they look back to the fathers like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David, they can't help but ask at some point, but how were those people saved? How were those men in heaven today if Jesus hadn't yet come and died on the cross? If no one was there preaching the gospel to them and calling them to repent of their sin and trust in Christ, how were those men saved? Well, Paul is saying that the gospel had been preached beforehand to Abraham. In the promises of God, in the purposes of God, he was calling them to look forward to the greater. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Christ is greater. So when you come to the temple and you offer a sacrifice, what's meant to happen there is those with eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe, they see beyond the lamb and to the lamb. They see beyond the priest and to the high priest. They see beyond the temple and to the tabernacle in which God came to dwell with us. It's only in Christ Jesus, trusting in the promises of God accomplished through his son, that anyone has ever been saved. So therefore, we must hide ourselves in him. So, Christ Jesus, of course, coming first to the Jewish people, preaching this gospel, revealing himself, and then the testimony that's been revealed to them, to Paul and the other apostles, they then come and they share this good news with us. Once you think about what Jesus prayed in the high, prayed in the high priestly prayer, in the upper room on the night of his betrayal, he's just laid out these beautiful prayers on behalf of his people that they would be one as he and the Father am one and that they would see the glory that he has had since before the foundation of the world. And Talking about the love that he and the Father share in and, and inviting these men to join them in this triune love that God has for himself. But then he says this in verse, seven, uh, verse 20, John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only. He's saying, I'm not, I don't ask just for the men in, these room, in this room. I'm not just speaking about them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He says, my purpose and my plan in coming wasn't just to reveal myself to the Jews, although those are the ones to whom I came. Those are the ones who will reject me. And through their rejection, my message will then go to the world. They will then reveal me and speak about me and preach my word to others. This must have taken root in John's heart because we find in his very first letter in only the third verse of his first letter, 1 John 1, 3, he says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That this was God's purpose all along, that Christ would come first to the Jews. They would be the first to hope in him and we also through them. So that we see a man like the Apostle Paul, the Jew of all Jews, a Pharisee among Pharisees, a Hebrew among Hebrews, a man who was surely nationalistic. If there was ever a nationalistic man, it would be through him that God would get this message to the Gentiles, the Apostle to the Gentiles, a man who was dedicating his life to be broken and beaten and battered so that this message wouldn't just remain with the Jewish people, that it would go out to the whole world. This is the you also. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It must be preached. 
How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear? Unless they have someone to preach. We must be a preaching people. Those who have this message entrusted to us. Those who have received this mystery. Those who by the Spirit of God have been given understanding and wisdom and insight into the purposes and plans of God. We must be a preaching people so that the world can hear. People can get all bound up whenever we start talking about the eternal plans and purposes and promises of God. Seeing that his purpose will not fail. That he will work all things according to the counsel of his word. And immediately their hearts kind of recoil because they say, well, what then about the preaching? What then about evangelizing? What then about sharing the good news? If God's plan's already worked out, if his purposes can't be thwarted, then what's the purpose in sharing the gospel? Well, he says right here, because it's when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that you believed. How did the elect come to faith? I said earlier that God has not just ordained the, the ends, but the means. How are the elect saved? How are the elect joined to Christ? How does faith actually happen from hearing? Can we point all the way back to the, before the foundation of the world and say, well, because their names were written in the Lamb's book of life? Yes. Can we point to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.30, where he says, it is because of God that you are in Christ? Yes. So at 10,000 feet, at the ultimate level, the true and ultimate cause of all these things, it's God. The plans and purposes and promise and willing and working of God. But at ground level, what happened? They heard. They heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and they believed. Paul is so thankful for the church in Thessalonica. He says, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, he's talking about the first, them as the first fruits and how they've obtained their, the, the, the glory of Christ. And he says, to this God called you, through our gospel it's through the preaching of the gospel that god is calling men to life through the preaching of the gospel that god is calling men to christ first peter 1 23 says this he's praising god thanking god because he has caused us to be born again through the living and abiding word of god he goes on to say and this word is the good news that was preached to you beloved there is power in the word When the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to the people of God, stuff happens. The things which God has ordained, they happen through the preaching, through the declaring, through the hearing of the Word of God. And so what is our role in all this? We sow the seed because we don't know. We know that God has predestined some. We know that God has chosen some. We know that he has written some names in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, and we don't know who they are. So we sow and we sow and we sow the seed, not even knowing in that moment, not even knowing based on their immediate reaction to the word who's who, but we sow the seed, trusting that God has some. What did he say to Paul? Go back into the city, for there are yet some of my people there. That God is taking this gospel to every tongue and every tribe and every nation and we go and we allow them to hear through the preaching of the word. Never once do I find in scripture that it says test the soil first and then you sow. As a matter of fact, if you go back and look at the parable of the sower, that guy was pretty sloppy. He was just throwing it left and right. You know why? Because there's always more. 
It wasn't his word to be stingy with. It wasn't his gospel to determine who was and was not worthy to receive it. He just sowed to the ends of his field. Even that which had been trampled down and would never once receive it. He sowed the word. The word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. Gospel just means the good news. It's a declaration of a thing that God has done. He says the truth, the word of truth. It's not just anything that's true. Look, there's plenty of things that are true. My mom had to remind me often, as I sometimes have to remind my children, just because it's true doesn't mean it's helpful. Just because it's true doesn't mean you have to let it come out of your lips. So he's not just talking about generic truth, general truth. He's talking about the truth, the truth of Christ Jesus. He who himself is the truth, it's the gospel. It's a word about what he has done. Not your repentance and faith. You see, if we're not careful, we can turn the, repentant, the, the, the gospel into nothing more than a call to repent and believe, but we don't tell them what the good news is. We just call men to repent and believe. Repent and believe in what? Repent from what and believe in what? The gospel is good news about what Christ Jesus has done. Repent and believe is the response, the only appropriate response to this good news to this declaration as we go out and we herald forth. We sound the trumpet and we declare to the world the good news of God. We know, of course, that that good news, it begins with some very, very bad news. Not bad news because it's bad. Bad news because of its consequences for us, apart from Christ Jesus. We must begin with the holiness of God. We must begin with a God who is absolutely and supremely jealous for the glory of his own name. Then we speak to men about who they are as little sinners, as men who have exchanged that glory for anything else, good things as they may be, men who have exchanged that glory for anything else. And then we must talk to them about the day of judgment which is to come. What does he say? He says, this is the gospel of your salvation. We must remind men that they need to be saved from something. And the thing they need to be saved from is God himself. It's the God who is so jealous for the glory of his own name that he will come in judgment and wrath to destroy sinners for all eternity. That's the bad news that must come before the good news. And then they're ready for the good news. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That he sends his son, Christ Jesus, the one who is eternally and infinitely God taking upon himself flesh and fulfilling all righteousness. Everything where the first Adam failed, the second and last Adam succeeded, winning for us all these spiritual blessings that we've just been rejoicing in, that all of those come through the perfect life, the fulfillment of all righteousness in the God-man, Jesus, Jesus Christ. And then having known no sin, having committed no sin, having not even the twinkle, uh, smallest twinkling of an ugly thought within his mind that this God-man, that the Son of God laid down his life. Not just dying physically, but drinking down the cup of his Father's wrath until he could declare, it is finished. Then three days later, rising again from the grave to prove that he was who he said he was to prove that he was truly victorious, to prove that the Father's wrath for the sake of his children has been satisfied. He rose again three days later, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. 
We must not stop with Jesus in an empty tomb, but we must also not just stop with the resurrection. We must remind them that Christ Jesus reigns today. That even now he sits at the right hand of the Father and that the reason that the author of the Hebrews in Hebrews 7 can say he is able to save us to the uttermost is because he always lives to make intercession for us. Like any great priest, like the great high priest, he doesn't just offer himself as a sacrifice to the Father. He is always and constantly interceding on our behalf. How do you know? This is next week's sermon. How do you know you're going to wake up a Christian tomorrow? How do you know that you will not fall away like Judas? Because the high priest, the king of the universe, is at the Father's right hand interceding on behalf of you today. And then they are ready to hear. Repent and believe and be saved. That he so loved, his, loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that all who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We don't know who these people are. We don't know what God has been doing in their life. We don't know how God viewed them in eternity past. We sow the seed, but we must tell them the whole truth. We must share with them the entire truth, the gospel of their salvation. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You see, hearing's not enough. Plenty of people have heard this gospel. How many times did you hear the gospel before you were saved? How many men have you shared the gospel with that continue to walk away because it's a stumbling block? It's an offense. It's a thing to be run from. It looks like death to the lost and dying world all around us. And we're reminded immediately that faith in Christ is not a thing that comes natural to man. It's gibberish to them. Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians? He said it's foolish to them. It's gibberish. They don't understand any of it because these things are spiritually discerned. Unless you have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is not going to be good news for you. Isn't that what we've been considering all throughout this first chapter of Ephesians? Why does one brother come to Christ like it's his only hope in all the world and the other brother runs like it's death? That's why Jesus would say to the men in John 10, he's talking about himself as the good shepherd, the one who comes to lay down his life for his sheep. And he says, you do not believe me because you're not my sheep. He doesn't say, I won't let you be my sheep because you don't believe me. He says, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. But praise God, he says, that my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. All throughout the scriptures, we see this picture of the people that God has People who belong to the Father whom he has given to the Son and the Son comes and he speaks and they hear and they come. My girls aren't as little as they used to be but back when they were little bitty and we'd be walking through the church on Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night and I was leaving, basically what I would do is I would yell down the hall and I would say, seal girls, let's go. None of y'all's kids came coming, why? Because they weren't mine. It was by that word that I called them to myself. And because they were mine, they heard and they came. But to the natural world, to the lost and dying world, they hear this word and they're not coming. At best, they're ignoring it. At worst, 
they're running the other direction and they're stopping up their ears. So we're reminded that God must act. God must work. God must do a thing to give man eyes to see and ears to hear if they're going to not just hear this word, but believe it. Acts 13, 48, we read about Paul and Barnabas. They're there and they're preaching this word. They're declaring this mystery that the Gentiles too have a place in the kingdom of God. And it says this, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why did they believe? They'd been appointed to eternal life. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, for we know, how will you know who's who? How will we know who are those who belong to the good shepherd? He says, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How will you know if you're chosen? Isn't that what causes all the anxiety? Anytime we start talking about election and predestination and all the ways in which God secures the salvation of those who are his, immediately we start wondering, but how do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know if my son's chosen, my daughter's chosen, my husband's chosen, my wife's chosen? He says right here, how do we know? We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The response to the word reveals those who are his. The work of the Holy Spirit coming upon them like Lydia, the woman that sat and she heard the word and the Lord Lord opened her heart to believe, to hear and receive and believe the word. It's not just hearing the facts of the gospel. It's not even just believing that these things are true. You see, theologians, they'll talk about really three things that make up true saving faith. It begins with just the knowledge. And that's, frankly, where so many of us miss out. We go to share the gospel and we forget to tell them the whole truth. We're so excited about what God has done in our lives. It doesn't come from bad motives. We're not trying to hold something back. We're just so excited about what God has done. And we've been taught in all kinds of evangelistic training that we need to take down all barriers to offense. We need to take down all barriers that might come between a person and them saying yes. And so we give them the end of the story. We forget to give them the whole truth. And so the beginning of faith is hearing the truth. It's not just hearing the truth. It's assenting to its truthfulness. It's agreeing, yes, that is a thing which is true. Christ Jesus has come to do that thing. But it must go beyond that. It must go here, he says, to placing your hope in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Salvation is not just a thing external, not just a thing that Christ offers to you. It's in him. It's a thing that can never be, never be separated from him. It's being joined to him, united to him in faith. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing and being in Christ. That's true saving faith, not just having awareness of the knowledge. I can never think of a day in my life when I didn't know the gospel. I know there was plenty of time when I didn't know the gospel, but basically from five years old on, I knew the very basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I can't think of a day in my life when I didn't believe that it was true. The difference was, had I placed my trust in it? Had I placed my hope upon it? Had I rested my eternity in him? And yet we know that this is a thing which man will not do. They will receive the knowledge. They will be able to recite the knowledge. They will even believe it to be true. But to place your faith in Christ is the thing that man cannot do in his natural state. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about this, that there's a veil over the eyes of the unbeliever, that the God of this world has blinded their minds. But he says then that God has shown in the hearts 
shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Not just glory in a thing, glory in a person. Glory in his son, Jesus Christ. That we'd have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we could see Jesus as he is. Because Jesus is truly and ultimately glorious. He is the highest and the best. All that has to happen is we have to see him as he is, and then we're guaranteed to come. Do you understand? God didn't have to manufacture something new. He didn't have to woo us with something that is not there. He just has to open our eyes to see reality as it really is, to see Christ as he really is. And it's guaranteed from that moment that we'll respond in repentant faith, that we'll want nothing more than him, that we'll place our hope upon him. Jesus was dealing with a large crowd that had come to him after feeding of the 5,000. You remember this? They had all chased him around the Sea of Galilee, and they came to him looking for more bread. And you remember where this thing ends, right? By the end of Jesus' sermon, people sometimes worry about what, what happens when you're in a church, and the church is shrinking, and more people aren't coming, more people are leaving. Well, I'd point to you to Jesus Christ himself. He had a great crowd, thousands upon thousands. By the time he was done, he had whittled it down to 12. He began talking about incredibly difficult things, and yet... What he says there is, is that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But lest we lose hope, he says, but all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I shall never cast him out. That there's something irresistible about having our eyes open, our ears open, our hearts changed, we see Christ, and we are guaranteed to come. So much so that we find no hope in anything else. Because you remember those 12, Jesus looked at them and says, do you want to go too? He wasn't worried about building numbers. He wasn't worrying about gaining popularity. He looked to the 12 and he says, hey, do you want to leave with the other thousands? And do you remember what Peter said to him? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I got nowhere else to go. Where else are we going to go? We've seen you, we can't unsee you. You've revealed it to us and we can't forget it. We know that you're the only one with eternal life. We know that you're the only one that can usher us into the kingdom of God. That's true saving faith. To see Christ as he is. To have your eyes open, your ears open, your hearts change, and you'll come. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So what does saving faith look like practically? I've said it's not just knowing the facts it's not just even believing that they are true but it's 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 resting ourselves upon it it's placing our hope within it the apostle john begins his letter by talking about this the fact that christ jesus came to his own first to the jew and then to the gentile that christ jesus came to his own and his own received him not but then he says verse 12 but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He's saying that receiving and believing, somehow there's some parallel there. That's receiving of Christ to ourself. That's the thing about faith. Have you ever wondered about this? Why is it that faith is the thing that joins us to Christ and not love? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Why then is it not by love that we are joined to Christ? Why isn't it by service that we are joined to Christ? Why is it faith that is the appointed instrument by which we receive and are joined to Christ? Because faith is empty-handed. Because faith is a receiving thing. 
It's a thing that is completely and totally outside of ourself. It's a thing that points to another and says, he has done and will do that which I could never do. It's not us giving anything to God. Faith is empty hands. It's coming and saying, I got nothing. I got nothing. I, don't, I got nothing to give you. I've got nothing to offer you. Empty-handed, I receive all that you are, all that you have promised to be on my behalf. And then it's resting all that you have in that. It's knowing that a storm is coming, that God has promised a flood of his judgment, that he is going to destroy all living things from the earth, and knowing if I'm not in that boat, I will perish. It's going up the mountain with your beloved son, knowing if God does not provide a substitute, the one I love dies. It's hiding within the house, hearing the moaning and the wailing and the weeping of the Egyptians as the angel of death comes through town and knowing that the blood upon my door does not work, I will perish. It's hiding yourself in the cleft of a rock, knowing that judgment is coming and if this thing doesn't hold, if it weren't for this one space that he has provided for me, I would be no more. It is looking to the cross of Jesus Christ and knowing if that's not enough, I'm in deep, deep trouble. It's refusing to hedge your bets. It's refusing to live with one foot in and one foot out. It's resting the full weight of all that you are on him and him alone. Beloved, if you've not done this, if you're not doing this, if you're not finding yourself in this moment enduring in repentant faith, like that. It's not about the size of your faith. It's not about the faithfulness of your faith. But if you do not find yourself resting and trusting in Christ like this, now and every moment until your dying day, you have no basis of hope. You have no basis for believing that eternal life will be yours. But praise God that if you find yourself, no matter how weak, no matter how feeble, no matter how faithless at times, you have found yourself resting in Christ Jesus like this, praise God, eternal life is yours and nothing will ever snatch you from his hands. Or perhaps you find yourself in this place this morning and you've just been so wrapped up in all that we've talked about in eternity past. You say, I don't know what any of that means. I don't know what to make of any of those things, but what hope do I have right now? Praise God that you can place your hope in Christ like that today and have the guarantee of eternal life to come. The eternal life is not bound up in the strength of your theology. It's not bound up in your understanding of God's eternal plans. It's not bound up in your ability to be a good little Christian boy or girl. It's in Christ and Christ alone. And so I plead with you, whether you've been following, counted yourself as a follower of Christ for a day or a month or 40 years, do not leave this place without asking yourself, asking God to reveal by his spirit, am I resting in Christ like that? Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that salvation is wholly and completely of you. We thank you that you have not given us some target that we must attain, some mountain we must climb, but that in Christ Jesus, salvation is accomplished, finished, complete. Father, help us to trust in that more fully each day.
to continually turn from our sin and to trust in him and him alone. Father, as we move out of this magnificent section, this this word of praise from the Apostle Paul towards you, and we begin to come down to ground level and consider the things that are happening in and around us in this life. Father God, do not allow us ever to take our eyes off of you or to place our hope anywhere else. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.